Welcome back to What the HR Podcast. I'm Jesse Novi, an HR business partner with CH Robinson. And I'm Mike Tool, HR technology consultant with SAP SuccessFactors. Welcome back to another episode of What the HR. On today's episode, we are joined by Peter Dunn, also known as Pete the Planner, who is an award-winning financial expert. He is also a USA Today's columnist, the author of 10 books, and the CEO and founder of Your Money Line. Pete is also the host of a popular radio show and podcast called uh, The Pete the Planner Show and appears regularly on TV and nationally syndicated radio programs. Pete is regularly considered one of the foremost experts on financial wellness. Also, uh, Your Money Line is partnered with Gallagher to create Gallagher Money Coaching, where they provide financial guidance to Gallagher clients. We have not yet talked about the importance of financial stability on this podcast, so Mike and I were really excited to have Pete as our guest and to dig into this really important topic deeper. We talked about um, how your money line creates what's called a stability score for their clients to really help clients better understand where their gaps are from a financial health perspective, and then give them guidance on closing up those gaps and making better financial decisions, both short and long-term going forward. We know you're going to love this episode as much as we did. Um, If you If you do love the episode and are generally enjoying our guests and our topics, we would really encourage you to go out, leave a uh, review and a rating on your favorite podcast platform. Doing so really helps to ensure that our episodes are getting in front of others who could benefit from hearing from our guests and listening to our topics. Thank you so much for being a listener, and we hope you love the episode. Okay, Pete, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Mike, it's good to be here with uh, both you and Jess. Uh, I'm excited for the discussion. Yes, likewise. So easy way of getting started for us, even though we gave your bio previously, uh, just tell our listeners about Pete Dunn, what do you do, and maybe the kind of the market you serve. Sure. I'm the CEO of a financial wellness company. Uh, that being said, I used to be a financial advisor. And the reason I started in financial wellness is because I started to notice a trend amongst my clients that from a behavioral perspective, they, they were struggling to make decisions. So starting about 2005, I started to focus on behavioral finance, started writing uh, for various publications and doing various media uh, platforms. Uh, but today I'm primarily focused, uh, we serve just over a million participants through their employers with our team of coaches and our platform, which really helps measure financial stability in a workforce. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and that that's awesome. We were we were talking before this that this isn't a topic that we have covered at length. So, very excited about that. Can you tell us just in general financial stability, like what your goal is when you're working with these companies? And then I do want to get into how you work with customers and how do they promote, you know, financial stability within their employees and how do they measure it, all that stuff. But generally speaking, financial stability, um, what does it look like and how do you do it? Yeah. To to understand financial stability, we we actually have to go back to the 1970s. So that's a nightmare as a podcast host. You ask a simple question and a person rewinds (laughs) 45 years, but that's what we're doing. Uh, So in the 1970s, a person's financial stability arguably didn't matter. I mean, people's lives were just as chaotic as ours are today. But since they had a pension, uh, that that chaos was sort of 
Um, it didn't matter because they knew that they would have the ability to retire successfully no matter how much chaos was in their lives. Mm-hmm. Once pensions started going away, because in 1975, 88% of people had a pension. In 1975, now it's closer to 10% in the private sector. When that started to go away and the 401k became the prevalent way in which people prepare for retirement, what ended up happening is the instability that was always there in our financial lives started to matter because if your financial life is unstable, then you uh, aren't going to save as much as you need to for retirement. And that's a very costly problem for employers because when your when your workforce is unstable, you are going to have higher turnover. You're going to have lower productivity. And when you have people at retirement age, they're not going to be able to retire because they weren't able to save money for retirement. So right. it's sort of this three-pronged, very costly problems that employers face. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious. So I I entered the workforce post pension. Unfortunately, was is was there and is there still a gap that the companies kind of left when the pensions went away and what we're doing today was is what we're doing today? I, I guess my question is: Is it a good alternative to the pension, or did they just did we miss on this? Yeah, it's a good question. So what happened in 1980, there was a benefits consultant out of Philadelphia named Ted Benna, and he, he's the, the godfather of the 401k. And it was actually created uh, as a means to compensate highly compensated individuals even more. So the whole point mm-hmm. of the 401k was to load up your executive team, but the only way it would work from a legal and tax perspective was to get the lower compensated people to put some money into it, right? Mm. And so this was the system that was created. It was supposed to go on top of a pension. Well, that combined with the uh, ERISA Act of 1974 convinced companies to say, you know what, let's just do the 401k because that shifts the responsibility of saving for retirement from the company to the employee. And, And Mike, the most problematic part of this is that that really wasn't communicated very well from mm-hmm. employers to employees. So for 40 for some years, people didn't realize that their entire, the entire responsibility for saving for a retirement is on them. So the financial industry sort of failed at that in my estimation. Yeah, I think we're still failing in, in some ways. And what it makes me think of is when I enter the workforce and when you're younger and, uh, you know, life changes and you have different priorities and that retirement isn't top of mind necessarily. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious, I'm curious if you think putting the onus on the employees to contribute to, to this is the wrong approach. I'm just thinking, I wish when I was, you know, 23 entering the workforce, they said, Hey, a portion of your check is going, you don't dictate how much it's just, it's this much because that's, what's best. I'm curious what, you know, your advice is on that or your opinion. Yeah. You know, I still think we're in the best way to do it. I, I would prefer to have a pension just like you and, and probably like Jess as well. We would, we'd all prefer to have a pension. I just think that ship has sailed, right? Yeah. I, I just think it's one of those things that there's just really no going back. And, and to your point, Mike, what has happened, you do have auto enrollment where people are automatically put in the 401k and they are automatically putting a certain percentage of their income into the 401k. Uh, but I, I still think uh, when we say things like, hey, just hit the match, you know, when you tell an employee to just hit the match, meaning 
put the the least amount in you can so that right. the employer will will match that contribution. That's a really dangerous message because telling people to hit the match virtually guarantees that they're off track financially. Mm-hmm. And it's this low hanging fruit. You, you know how it is with benefits and benefits communication is that you only have so much time and attention to say what you want to say. And what they chose to say through the early 80s through today is just hit the match and you'll be fine, which, which is absolutely not true. They won't be fine. In my opinion, it's likely a bigger issue kind of in going back to Mike's original question of being younger and naive. And you're also juggling likely paying back your student loan debt. You may be moving out of uh, whatever sort of campus uh, lodging you had at the time and maybe paying higher rent. You also now have um, insurance that's coming out of your paycheck if you're not collecting insurance under your family. So there's this missing link, I think, for individuals heading into the workforce for the first time on how do I balance all of these financial priorities while also thinking long-term about how to care for myself and maybe my family if I choose to have one when all of this is behind me. Yeah, you're so right. Because what you're talking about, that that those first few months, first couple of years in the workforce, you're talking about becoming stable, <laughs> Like, like figuring out how your life's going to work. And a, a retirement plan is about long-term stability. So, so that's, the, that's why this can be so chaotic. Now, it, it so happened when a person have, had a pension, retirement was a rather easy idea. You just stayed employed. Just don't get fired. And eventually, <laughs> you can stop working. Uh, now, and this is a very uh, alarmist comment. This seems very dramatic, what I'm about to say. Uh, Retirement is the most difficult thing anyone will ever do financially in their work career. It is incredibly hard. And Jess, it, it requires a person uh, to make it easy on themselves by starting at age 22 or whenever they enter the workforce. If they make that right decision at benefits election on the, the day that they figure, fill out their paperwork, man, it's so much easier than a person that figures it out when they're 37 years old with a couple of kids. Yeah, it- and it's true. It would be great to reach, right? If I could take a time machine back to that age, I'd change a lot of things, but I can't. So I would love to understand. There are a lot of people in the workforce that they just, whether they couldn't or they didn't understand it, they're in a spot, maybe they're, you know, 40s, 50s, whatever it may be. But now they do have to start thinking about it. So I'm really curious what you advise your customers and just individuals in general that are in that position where it's like, hey, now I'm starting to get a little stressed out about this because I, I didn't make the right decisions. What, what do you do? I think too often, I will answer that by the way, Mike, but I think what too often yes. ends up people end up doing is they just say, Hey, save more for retirement. And then the person says, I can't afford to. Right. And then the company says, you can't afford not to. And then it's just a, like this dumb stare off, right? It's just this weird thing. So that's why stability is the focus. Anytime you've got someone later to the game of preparing for retirement, you must first measure how stable their financial life is right now. And the way we do that and, and the way we th- think others should do it, we think there are 10 factors of financial stability. We can, we can talk about them if you like, because they, they're all very separate. They're all, some of them you don't even ever think of, but they dictate whether a person should be able to save for retirement. Because once you add that stability, then retirement follows. So if, if you want, we can go that direction. Why don't you give us like your top three, and then everybody will reach out to you to learn the other seven, <laughs> right? Just, just to save a little bit of time, because there are a lot of things I want to go into regarding 
total compensation and benefits and how that relates to, you know, attracting and retaining talent. So just in the sake of time, maybe your top two or three. Sure. So the first one's housing. Uh, the first one is how much of your income you spend on housing. And depending on uh, where you're listening to this uh, from, uh, if you are in what we call an involuntarily expensive area, like the Bay Area or uh, Manhattan or, or, or Vegas or, or Phoenix, if that's the case, then there's nothing you can do about it because you just live in a really expensive area. But if more than 40% of a person's take-home pay is going towards mortgage or rent, they are unstable. There's just there's just no ifs, ands, or buts. Now, I happen to live in the Midwest where people voluntarily get themselves into housing conundrums because there's uh, cornfields that can be turned into homes pretty easily. And so if that's the case, if you're still above that 40%, you've sort of voluntarily put yourself up against it. So housing to me is number one. Number two, I would go with, I mean, it's sort of a natural one, emergency funds. You know, um, do you have three months worth of expenses? If you do, you are stable. If you do not, you you are not stable. And, and, and some people will say, yeah, but I got $5,000, which is a lot of money. And I'm not here to argue whether $5,000 is a lot of money or not. But I will tell you, if you live on $7,000 a month, $5,000 is in fact not a lot of money. Right. So that would be the second one. Third one, um, Third one, I would go with debt. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of obvious there. If a person has consumer debt, credit cards or personal loans, it, it adds a lot of stress to their financial lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think employers have tried to address debt. There are certain financial wellness programs that are very debt centric. Uh, but the fact of the matter is there are 10 factors and they all have equal weight. And so that's why we try to address all 10. Mm-hmm. Jess, I'd be curious on maybe what you guys have done around financial well-being. And then also just question for Pete is everybody, you mentioned three things and there's 10 of them. And that leaves a lot of options for a lot of people just to be in a tough spot. And so companies can't address every single one necessarily individually. So as a company, how do you put things in place to try to help people with this stuff? Is it uh, communication? Is it information? Or Well, I, I'll certainly throw in kind of two cents, and I'm not an expert in the total uh, reward space. So I'm just going to throw that out as a caveat. So likely whatever uh, Pete's going to pile on top here is going to be a lot more valuable for our listeners. Um, I personally feel like student loan debt has been a really hot topic for a long time now, and rightfully so. Um And, you know, there's been, we've interviewed, you know, Mike and I have interviewed a couple of employers that have really focused on either helping to pay uh, to get an education as a part of being a a talent of that employer so that they can come out of their, whatever type of education they're receiving debt-free and or really helping to pay down um, student debt entirely. And, you know, given many workforces uh, similar to mine, focus on bringing in a large volume of some of their key roles through campus recruiting programs or other, other similarly situated programs. If we collectively could figure out a way to help our 
younger generation that's coming into the workforce or is already in the workforce to pay down that student debt so that they can they then could focus on contributing more to a 401k maybe even a Roth if they choose to, Mm -hmm. and then pile money away to Pete's point for having likely maybe even more than three months of reserves in the event of a catastrophic event or loss of a job, something of that nature. Mm -hmm. Pete, what would you add there? Jess makes a really nuanced point here. I mean, the issue with student loans is that, let's say you don't have them. And let's, let's say you have a pension and no student loans. All you had to worry about was your financial present. That's it. Right. You got your money. You figured out how to spend it. Now, let's say you don't have student loans and you don't have a pension. You have to worry about how to spend your money now and then also save for the future. Now, let's say you have student loans and no pension. Now you have to worry about your past, your present, and your future. And that is really really complicated. So there's a there's a few things to note here. This first one's super weird, what I'm about to say, and it seems way off track and arguably judgmental. <laughs> it's the idea that sometimes employers don't do themselves any favors here by requiring someone have a college degree for a position that doesn't require a college degree. Right. And so what they'll find is they'll have people have all this student loan debt in a position that isn't justified by that degree and so they create their own chaos. So that, I think mm-hmm. that's a bad hiring practice to some degree. Beyond that, yeah, it is a little bit of an issue. Um, and, and it has to do with wages, right? It has to do with uh, what is a living wage in the area in which a person uh, resides. There's an amazing calculator that I like to use. It's, it's from the uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and it tells you what wage you need to earn based on your zip code to survive based on how many members are in your household and how many of those members are kids and or working adults. And it's Mm. livingwage.mit.edu, livingwage.mit.edu. And I think any employer that struggles with this student loan problem should, should go to that calculator and say, how much farther above this wage are we paying for people who have student loans? Because while it is certainly the employee's issues to, to solve, I've found employers don't do themselves any favors sometimes by not truly understanding all the context around the problem. Right. Yeah. And it's a really good point. And again, and I think to me, this is one of the hardest things for an employer to figure out how to help with these things, because there's going to be people with student loans and there's going to be people without. So you can't only address people with because people without are going to say, Hey, why, (laughs) what's going on here? So when we talk about a well-rounded financial stability program that, you know, you see other companies doing, or maybe you consult on, what does that look like in terms of, you know, education and communication within the company? Yeah, that's a it's a great question. I want to hit one of the points you made within that question because it's sure. super important. Uh, come September of 2022, it will have been 29 months since someone with a federal student loan had to make a payment. Mm. Right, that it's been at a zero percent interest rate since March of 2020, and so come September, it's 29 months. At some point in time, there there are employee benefits out there that have student loan benefits. And, and part of that benefit is to refinance a student loan from a federal public loan to a private loan. The reason I bring this up, Mike, is because there is a large portion of the population 
that through their employer, they've made themselves ineligible for that 29-month period of relief because their student loans were no longer federal. They refinanced them to private loans amongst uh, through their employer. That is a problem. That's a nightmare for an employer where we all just went through this chaotic time in a decision, a benefits decision you made because you went to a benefits fair and someone said it was a good idea. And so you brought it on and it felt good. And then it wasn't. So I think a financial stability, financial wellness program needs to feel more like a Swiss army knife and less like a specialized tool. Mm -hmm. Um, The reality is, you know, the three of us, I'm going to say I'm, I'm both of your ages just to make myself feel younger, just, just so you know. <laughs> so we are all the same age. We all earn the same amount of money. We all have the same family structure. In fact, we kind of talked about it before the show. We kind of do, mm-hmm. other than the age. Uh, so that is to suggest that despite the similarities, our lives and what we need help with are so different. Right. Are so different. So I think sometimes when an employer says, well... Uh, our people are primary truck drivers and they primarily make $60,000 a year and they primarily single, then we must find a benefit that serves that demographic. That is a mistake because all of those people, a thousand bus drivers that make 60 grand that are single, that are all the same age, wildly different financial lives. So it's not about a special product. It's about uh, the ability to um, diagnose what's going on and then prescribe a path forward. Mm-hmm. How do they do that? I mean, so I think if I'm listening to this, I'm thinking, gosh, I don't want to necessarily diagnose all these different issues because then I have to try to fix them. So um, not that companies don't want to fix them. I'm just saying that there are so many different paths. So how do you diagnose that and then help? Yeah. So I, I don't want to do a giant commercial for your money line, my organization, but I'll just tell you how we do it. Right. Yeah, that, that, that's my expertise. So I'll tell you what we do. That's why we take a stability index score. So we have this proprietary tool that measures a person's stability. It's that score that dictates what the person should do next. And then our team of coaches are, are there to diagnose and, and address each person's individual situation. I think it's a giant mistake for any employer to try to make big judgments about the financial needs of their demographics because then they'll make that student loan refinance mistake. I'll give you mm-hmm. another example, Mike. Uh, back in 2007, we caught wind of, um, well, we got there in 2009. But in 2007, this client of ours, before we got there, the CFO was really into home ownership, like really into home ownership. So he personally put on a home ownership clinic for some of their 2,000 workers. Well, fast forward 24 months, you notice I said 2007, <laughs> right? upwards of 35% of people who went through his program and bought a home were in foreclosure, right? Because it was this special solution for these people that needed a home in, I wouldn't call it malpractice, but that was a really bad decisions and a decision. I think sometimes companies make that decision because they try to self-diagnose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bad luck, bad timing, probably the right motivation, right? He thought he was helping, but, but to your point, uh, we can't predict those things. And so the way we educate employees and suggest things to them, you need to remove the possibility that anything like that could happen. I would think. Yeah. There's, you bring up an interesting point here, good motivation, poor execution. Mm -hmm. Um, I think another example of that is a 401k loan. 
good motivation to have a 401k uh, loan available for people to be able to borrow against their retirement account. But in practice, it strips away the financial culture of an organization because you will not end up retiring people from your company, which by the way, should be a goal to retire people from your company. Yeah. If people are constantly borrowing money from their future, I think I am the CEO of a company, but when I talk to other CEOs of companies, my message is become a culture of retiring people. That is an amazing measure of corporate success is that a person can work there, make a living, and then move on to the next stage of their life. Unfortunately, because chief executives have so many things to focus on, including their investors, uh, it's sometimes hard to have that be the top-down approach is that we want our people's financial lives to be successful too. All right. I have so much I want to say about all of that, um, but we'll kind of break it up so that we don't go off on too, too much of a, on a rabbit hole here. But my, my first question, kind of going back to the original discussion, Pete, um, with a stability score is I'm curious what your thoughts are on a listening strategy as it relates to total rewards. Cause there are companies that, you know, mine included that have done these before that have really helped to gather information on what are the demographics of our workforce? Based on that demographic, what do these different buckets, if you will, um, want based on where they're currently at in our life? And then making total rewards decisions based off of the results of that listening strategy. I love that question because it has to do with why do you want someone to stay employed? Like, what's the point of the total reward strategy? Is it simply retention? Is it talent attraction? Uh, I'm going to speak frankly here, um, and in, in, but with respect. But I'm going to speak frankly. Frankly, some organizations say uh, we're going to have an amazing paternity policy, or we're going to have an amazing uh, adoption policy, or pet insurance. And and I'm not here to say any of those things are trendy. I'm here to say that when you package all those things together, it tells a story about the type of people that are in your organization, right? From my perspective, when you make a total rewards decision, that's not a mistake to do what I've just said, but I think you all have to say, I want the people in our organization to be financially successful. And it just so happens that that means something different for everyone. So you can't actually classify people into groups. I would also note that sometimes people don't know what they really need. Like they'll say they want it and they won't use it. Or they won't say they want it and they need it. Um, look no further than there's this, uh, there's this study through the Employee Benefits Research Council called the Retirement Confidence Survey that, that comes out every year. And I love to read it because I'm a nerd, but I love to read this survey because what it ends up doing is it tells you how badly people have misplaced confidence in their ability to retire. So it's all based on this survey data, just, just like you're saying, Jess. It's like, we ask the people what they want, they tell us, guess what? A lot of times they're wrong. So even if you're, even if you're asking them, which is nice, and they feel empowered, they feel heard, they actually don't know what they're talking about, which is difficult to say, but that's what we found to be true. Hmm. That's really fascinating, Pete. Thank you for being so candid about that. Um, I think about 
financial planners and the access that individuals have to them based on their income. Most people don't have enough income to pay for a financial, most financial mm-hmm. advisors. And, and as somebody who is fortunate enough to have a financial advisor, that sentiment that you just stated, Pete, resonates with me because even as somebody who feels like I'm relatively savvy about what I need, what I need to focus on and, and being financially um, healthy um, in my life and then in my marriage and in our family, I every year go into that meeting and I'm like, I didn't realize that or I need to pivot here, which I would not have known without the consultation of a professional. Yeah, it's it's so interesting, right? Because if you think about the complexity of any financial life from the easiest thing you ever do, which is open your first bank account to the other end of the scale, let's say on, on 10 on the scale is uh, have a hedge fund or or select a, a private equity investment, something really intense that you know 2% of Americans do. So the scale is one to 10. Most Americans need help with one through seven. Financial advisors, as you just described, Jess, and you're fortunate to have one, help with eight through 10. So this is to say most Americans aren't even served with the financial needs they have because they're not in a position to compensate a financial advisor because a financial advisor doesn't help with the problems that they have. And that's why we think financial wellness solution fills that gap. It comes in and says, let's get a person stable and make them a better client someday for some lucky financial advisor who's going to get to help them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I want to go back. I mentioned there was a lot I wanted to say about the last comment. So you had mentioned earlier that it should be, and I'm not quoting you verbatim, but generally speaking, it should be a company's um, objective to retire employees. Given that we know we're in this gig economy, you know, talent are not spending nearly the number of years that they did historically. Do you really feel like that should be an employer's goal? I do. And, and I appreciate you. Well, I appreciate you busting my chops on that, frankly, okay. because I think that's a very fair question. I think in the spirit of the greater good, I want to leave my employees better off no matter how long they work here. When we interview people and on their first day, I have a very weird way of saying, thank you for spending a portion of your career here. I'm really excited to work together. And when you move on, I hope that you are better for it. And for me, Jess, that means that they are on track to retire whether they stay here for two years or they stay here for 32 years, but you can't, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. You, you can't have someone accidentally stay 32 years and then all of a sudden start to care about their financial wellness. It has to be from the beginning. So let, let's say that there are 10 businesses that think the way I think here in central Indiana where I live. Okay. So let's say there are 10 businesses. A person works for me for two years works for another one for five years, works another one for seven years, you get the point, they're still on track. But as a business community, if if the weirdo is the person that thinks, oh, I want to get people on track, and then everyone else doesn't, then we all suffer for it. So you're right. I mean, people are going, what, what's the, you you know better than I, was it seven jobs or something like that that people end up having? having? I still think you have to conduct yourself in the spirit of, of retiring people. There's a client we have, Um, they have 1,500 employees over the age of 70. 
1,500 employees over the age of 70. And here's why this matters. That is not a culture of retirement. A vast majority of, this is anecdotal, a vast majority of those people likely don't want to be working. Okay, they want to they want to go on to the next stage of their life. And the fact of the matter is there's math to this. Prudential Financial has this stat that says when a person wants to retire, is at retirement age and cannot retire so they don't retire, it costs their employer $50,000 in excess compensation and benefits for every year they don't retire. So that's to say 1,500 people over the age of 70 cost that organization $75 million a year in excess compensation and benefits. That's why I think a culture of successfully retiring people matters. Okay, so it's yeah. really all for the collective good. That, yeah. Everybody needs to be on the same page about that. Yeah, I was curious how you're going to answer that because I, I was like, okay, like Jess, yeah, good point. But then when you explain it, it's, hey, we need to focus on getting people to retire, not necessarily even here, right? Like it's generally it serves us all. Yeah. Yeah. Think, think so, about you know our kids. You know, if the neighbor kid is acting a fool in my driveway, playing around in the basketball goal. I'm not going to discipline the kid, but I, I am certainly going to try to, to provide leadership. It takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to retire people. So I think it's the same thing. So, so I, I, I'm going to go back. I've kind of already asked this, but it's it's just it's really interesting that we went down this path because I, I was just just editing a, a podcast today. Um, it was one we did a month or so ago, and it, we were talking about wellness programs. And I had asked the question even during then, do companies need to force it a little bit in the in the best interest of their employees? And I feel that same way. And I'm not a proponent of that companies need to tell everybody what to do and how to do it. But we've we've kind of all agreed that it's people don't necessarily make the best financial decisions because they maybe don't know or they just simply don't care. And so as a company, when we talk about these things, at what point does a company take on the parent? To your point, telling that kid, showing a little leadership and saying, you know what, you're not going to, I need to do it for you. That's what parents do oftentimes, right? I'm doing it for your best interest. Companies take the approach of, we will offer it. Maybe it'll help with retainment. Maybe it'll help, but they, but they don't push a lot of this stuff or they don't. And, and when I say force it, you don't take somebody's paycheck and say, hey, give me some of it back. You set up systems and processes to remove it from, right? Somebody's visual, like I, you know, it doesn't even hit my paycheck. Let's say, or I don't see it. It's just right away. We're doing this for your best interest. That was a long-winded response to ask how much should we push companies to make these decisions for the employees in their best interest. You remember, fifteen years ago in our industry. It was the, the buzzword was culture. It was always, and it has been since then, by the way, uh, culture, 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 culture. If Mike, if, if you're in a situation in which you are asking your people to do something that is against your company culture, then they're not going to do it, right? If your culture is paternalistic or maternalistic, right? And in, in the right way, right. And, and, and it's not tone deaf and it's consistent with the values from a top-down approach, people will do it. We all know organizations that collectively gather funds for charity via 
paycheck deduction. We all know companies that mm-hmm. you know, adopt different areas of their community and beautify like medians on the highway. Like we, we know of these exceptional companies and you can't put in a wellness program and be like, Hey everybody, um, eat some apples, uh, 10,000 steps are neat. Good luck. Like it just, it doesn't work. And so you either a incentivize people with, with money or some other benefits or or two, you, you come out from a leadership perspective, see sweet people, make it important to them. And and by the way, you can't make something important to your C-suite if it's not important to them. But if you're going to spend the dollars, if you're a total rewards person or an HR person and, and you know, you're going to have to justify your purchase decision to someone who doesn't actually care about that benefit. Good luck, because that's not going to work. Yeah. I'd also pile on to that to say companies and individuals can be liable for giving financial advice. So as an HR, even if I worked in total rewards, I can't consult somebody on what they should put on their W-2 form or what they should contribute to their 401k. That could get me in, in big trouble and ultimately the organization as well. And secondly, I going back to conversation about kids, as adults, we're not that much different as we were when we were kids in terms of parents tell you to do something or an adult tells you to do something. And then we have this rebel tendency to want to do the opposite of whatever somebody tells us. I mean, think about this return to work and, you know, all the controversy around like, you're not going to, I haven't had to go into the office for two years now. I'm not going to do that commute again. You can't tell me what to do. And so there's this balance, right, of education and to Pete's point, like making it really important and getting creative and how you communicate it and provide different means of communicating it, whether it be road shows or um, virtual learnings or, you know, small lunch and learns, things of that nature to get people to ask questions and to be curious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if everyone arrives to the conversation raised by different people in different environments with different significant others raised by different people in different environments, that's why communications from HR department and total rewards department might be one of the most challenging jobs in the entire world that that is so undervalued because you only have so much attention span that you're able to tap in on on some frequent basis and you have to choose. What are you going to do? How, how are you going to say that? You know, it's funny. Our, our, 401, our average 401k rate here at Your Money Line, in terms of contribution that our people are putting in the plan, is something like 13.7% is the average. Then you add on our match, it's nearly 20% of people's compensation is going away per year. Why? Because that's what I care about. And I make a big deal of it. We also, in our, our break room, have very unhealthy snacks. Why? Because I don't care about that. Right? And so to this point, it, it really is about leadership, um, leadership, supporting their HR and total rewards teams. Um, I think the worst thing about probably being a total rewards or HR person is that you're asked to come up with these innovative benefits that engage people, that keep them there. And then you just don't get the support uh, of the C-suite. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to go as far as to call it condescending. That's a bit aggressive, but I will note that it's a no-win situation because then you're forced to justify a spend that didn't work. Yeah, we're. I think a lot of people probably have the notion of we are helping. That's what their paycheck is for, right? What they do with it, right? That's up to them. And um, how much more do you want me to do? Like that's why we pay people. And I, 
people listening probably someone say, yeah, there's a little bit of truth to that. And I, I wouldn't argue that there, there is, there has to be some responsibility at the individual level as well. So we're talking about how does a company help people understand how to do these things better. And we're going to, sorry, I, I didn't. No, no, no. I, I, I interrupted you with a hand signal, which is yeah. the newest way to be rude on a podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Uh, I even to- talked about it before, right? I said, Hey, if I do this, yeah. don't stop. And then I stopped as soon as you did it. Uh, but I, I want to give you an example of two school yeah. districts in the area in which we, this is your, your exact point, two school districts. One of them is our client. One of them we approached and said no. And with school districts and any nonprofit, we have a tool within our system that gets student loans forgiven for teachers and for nonprofit workers. It's a government program that we've created this tool to, to streamline it. It's, it's really great. So for this one school district, They've gotten $1.9 million of student loans on track for forgiveness since August of 2021 through our tool. We go and take this information to the HR director of another school district in our area, of which we have a relationship with. We shared the news and they simply said, uh, that's their problem. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this one school district announced it at the board meeting, reinforced it. We've gotten $1.9 million of student loans forgiven for our teachers. And is I don't know how it is up where you guys are, Teachers are just constantly under attack these days. Yeah. They're told what to teach. They're told they're wrong. They don't told what they're not doing, what to do. So this one district says, we're going to lift them up. This other one says, not our problem. That's the difference. Yeah. And that's a huge difference. And that's just, uh, that is just indicative of that probably entire culture that's right going through there. And when we talk about retaining people, they, they probably, or they may have some, some issues there. So I, I want to talk specifically about you and your company and how you guys help people. I know that we'll probably wrap fairly shortly, but um, love this stuff. I We look at this podcast and say, how do people listen to this episode and be able to apply something to the workforce in their job the next day, right? Like we're not just talking 100,000 foot view, everything's theoretical. Like what are some real things they can do And then what are some things you guys can do to help them? First thing you can do is to see how significant your financial cultures are, cultural issues are within your organization. So here, here are some metrics you can go look up after you listen to the podcast today, go and look up what your average contribution rate is on your 401k. If that number plus your match is less than 12%. So let's say your average person's putting in six and a half percent. You put in four, that's 10.5%, which is less than 12%. Free math lesson for you today. <laughs> uh, that is that is not ideal because that means that the vast majority of your workforce is not on track to retire successfully. So that is to say everyone goes and they work, they, they have a lifestyle. But just so you know, when you work here, things aren't going to work out for you. That's a, that's a tough pill to swallow and people dislike me even more after having said that about 10 seconds ago. The second thing you want to look for is what is the average or what is the number of people, the percentage of your employees that have 401k loans? If it's in excess of 20%, culturally, that's a bad thing because it's uh, it's like the old Leonard Skinner song, what is it? Two, uh, one step forward, two steps back or something like that. That's basically what that is. Never thought you'd have Leonard Skinner quoted on your podcast. Love it. Uh, <laughs> the third thing- First time. Yeah, first time. Nice. Uh, garnishments. 
depending on your employee population is another thing you can look at. You can you can see how many garnishments are you processing as a payroll department where where people are having funds withheld for for child support or, or tax liens or anything like that. And then finally, and this one's very qualitative and very personal, and you probably don't want to share it with anyone else, is do you think deep down inside your leadership team wants your people to have a, f- a financially successful life? And do they act that way? Mm-hmm. Um, because if the answer is, nah, not really. Okay, okay, I'm not throwing stones here. I'm just going to say, with that answer, be ready to deal with a lot of other problems. Yeah, Because yeah. it's just a sign. It's interesting that you, you've said that because all the things you said before it, in my mind, it sounded like some tactical things for somebody to go back and do. But I think on like a human level, what you were saying is like just actually care about the financial well-being of the people that are within your organization. And then you ended with, but if at that top level, there's simply people that don't, it's it's going to be a battle, but how do you overcome it? We, I, again, sometimes when I talk about what we do here, it, it I'm not being braggadocious. I'm not being the mm-hmm. hero of our own story. I'm just saying our paternity policy is the exact same as our maternity policy because we believe it's the right thing to do. There's not a financial benefit to it. It doesn't help our company. It's just the culture of what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so some organizations are trying to decide, you know, certain benefits. Do we have them? What does it look like? How does it impact us? We have health insurance because it's the right thing to do. Uh, we have the certain type of health insurance because it's the right thing to do. Uh, and we view, view that as a business expense. Um, and that's okay. So I think sometimes when people listen to this sort of message and as your listeners evaluate their own organizations they work for, I don't want to frustrate people by saying, hey, you have an issue, but there's not a lot you can do about it. But to some degree, for some organizations, they have a lot of issues and nothing can do about it because it's just not within the value set of the company. Sure. Pete, how do you think, I'm thinking about an organization my size, which is huge. We're like 16,000 employees. We're global. So an individual that sits at the desk level, maybe even works in a non-exempt slash hourly role is very disconnected from their leadership team. So how is somebody that might be listening at that level gauge the health or the give a shit factor of their, of their leadership team to their financial stability. That's beautiful. It's so good. I'm afraid to answer it. Um, so I I would say first off, um, that's incredibly difficult. Anytime there are multiple locations or a ton of remote, we call them remote workers now, but just not sitting at a desk workers. Um, it's, it's exceptionally more difficult than maybe a headquarters group that 5,000 people work at the headquarters. Totally different. The second thing to consider here is if the, if the hourly wage is too low, there's not a lot you can do about it. If, if someone's making at living wage or less, you, you can't actually install traditional financial wellness programming because it's tone deaf. The problem isn't that they aren't budgeting or that they go to Starbucks too much, which is ridiculous. It's that they they don't actually have bootstraps to pull up, and that's not right. accusatory. It's just factual. Uh, but but I think the real element here is that's why it takes such 
a talented total rewards and benefits communication team to pull that off. There are companies that have 16,000 employees in the other same circumstance you've described that do it really well and some that do not. And I think it's about pouring talent into the HR roles and total rewards roles as opposed to spending cheap on those roles and just viewing it as a commodity. I think you need really talented people to pull that off. One time somebody showed me um, kind of like a financial pyramid model where they would show, you know, where, where do your heavy, heavy income people sit within the organization and your heavier incomes should not all filter to the top of the pyramid, which most companies do, you know, you should have some, you should have a, um, a muffin top if you will, you know, where things are a little bit fatter kind of through the middle line. And even maybe in some case, equally as fat at that individual contributor line, because we know that those individual contributors are the ones that are revenue in revenue generating roles. If we didn't have those roles, likely the company wouldn't succeed. You know, for, for what it's worth, as a, a good quality Midwesterner, I am fatter through the midsection. So that is uh, <laughs> that is good. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting you bring up um, sort of income levels there. And, and this is sort of weird and very anecdotal. Some cultures are that the parking lot is filled with $70,000 pickup trucks. And that's the financial culture of the organization, despite the fact that the average wage at that level is like $53,000. So it's it is a cultural educational thing of which... There's not a lot of turning back. That's just the nature of the workforce. And that's not defeatist. It's just honest. So sometimes mm -hmm. you have to understand what will work and what will not work. Um, and if your entire parking lot is filled with $70,000 pickup trucks, not a lot works, it, frankly. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to ask one more question. And then, Jess, if you have anything else, and obviously we'll wrap and you know, tell everybody how they can get in touch with you. and. So my question is, and maybe, you know, relate this to how you help your customers. My, my question would be because, and we've talked about the different income levels and you even mentioned when the 401k came out, it was for the high earners. Well, now it's for everybody. And to your point, there are some people that I think you said don't have bootstraps to pull up, but everybody has some sort of a goal. And that may be, I want to buy a second home for some people, maybe I want to be able to get through holidays, through Christmas, thing, you know, basic stuff and feel financially stable there. So no matter what the income level is, do you guys work with your customers to put in, to give people a plan to just hit whatever goal it may be that they have? Yeah, that's the way it was designed. And that's why we do the stability index score, because the person's experience on our platform and with our coaches is through that lens. There's nothing worse in financial wellness that if you're trying to get out of debt, and you're trying to triage a financial emergency, and I'm talking about maxing out your 401k, boy, that that's no good. And and vice versa, let's say I'm trying to talk about buying that second vacation home and, and or I, that's what I wanna hear about. And the financial wellness people are talking about collections debt. That's mm -hmm. silly. Um, so so yeah, uh, tone, tone matters. I would also say that people who are struggling financially Sometimes they don't need a solution. They need an empathetic ear that, that's going to make them feel heard. And yeah. it's going to make them feel like the company cares that they have a resource there where they can just vent and not have the, the person try to get in and nitpick and solve their problems. I mean, this is 
a lot about tone. It's a lot about empathy. It's about trying to make sure we don't separate ourselves into haves and have nots. Um, people need different types of love. And, and so that, that's the way we view it at least. Absolutely. Last thing. So I was lying. Last question. This is more just like a compliance thing. Cause Jess, you mentioned that, and, and I didn't know this, there are certain things that as a, you know, HR leader, you may not be able to talk about. So just for anybody listening that maybe they're brand new to HR, you know, what can be talked about through HR, Jess, maybe that's for you. And then for everything else, Pete, can you guys have those? I just don't want anybody to listen to this and walk in and do something that they shouldn't have. Yeah, no, that's where I would say um, companies working with a company like Pete's comes comes into play because we Mm -hmm. can educate and we can demonstrate maybe generally speaking, like what, what I've experienced in the past is we've created personas and we've said, you know, this is the persona that you fit into. Maybe you would likely want to explore these three things. Okay. And so that's how we can sort of educate and help people maybe make kind of a, a need analysis, uh, based on, you know, their personal needs. But in terms of the very specifics that we've talked about in this episode today and specific to um, the, I, I wrote it down and now I can't find it, the stability score that Pete was referring to where they say, and, and likely Pete's financial planners are gathering very specific income-related information, debt information, asset information. That is where um, any member of an organization, um, HR or otherwise, should never go in a conversation mm-hmm. with an employee. Yeah, I'm glad you, I'm glad you cleared that up. Thank you. I, I would echo that, uh, Jess. I, I would also say that's why we don't give specific investment, specific tax, or specific legal advice. And sometimes when I say that, are people like, "Well, then what do you do?" Um, I would note three percent of the questions we get are questions we we just can't answer and we choose to direct them to resources. Um, but it's important. I mean, of course, we have errors and omissions insurance and all those sorts of things to be able to give guidance to people. And it also brings up one other note, and uh, maybe I'll close with this, is sometimes you, you may see the value in financial wellness. And so you look for local free resources, whether it be a bank or a credit union or something like that, which is great except the fact that the reason it's free is because then all of your employees are prospects for products and services and loans. And that's a whole other level of liability that you have to consider. Uh, as, as my high school econ teacher taught us, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And that is true in financial wellness as well. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Outside of ending where people can connect with Pete, um, I think it might be helpful, Pete, for you to give a just a little bit more information about how employers or employees of those employers connect with you. You know, is it calls? Is it also via some sort of like a SaaS platform? You talk a little bit about that. Sure. So uh, two main elements to to what we do here at Your Money Line. There is our, our coaches, which connect people with people via phone, email, live chat, uh, which is on our platform. And then our platform itself is a SaaS solution that that measures your financial life, guides you through a process. Um, and, and so, yeah, we sort, sort of both, right? And employers have access to our platform as well, which then aggregates all the data of their workforce, both in terms of success metrics, engagement metrics. Uh, so we definitely leverage technology 
but with real people. Like we, we think people solve people problems. And sometimes when it comes to money, technology doesn't exactly solve financial behavior issues. Mm-hmm. So if I'm working for an employer that let's just say uses Wells Fargo as an example for their 401k, but separate from my employer, I also have stocks and maybe an IRA through other means. Do you also provide services for um, finance, I'll say parts of the portfolio that are not associated with the employer that the employee works with? That's an awesome question because the 401k platform, Wells Fargo, for instance, they would advise on the 401k and arguably they would actually advise on other IRAs and things too. They, They would be glad to give you advice. Since we don't deal with specific investment advice, we're helping people with how do you get out of debt? How do you? How much house can you afford? How much car can you afford? What if you do get if you get divorced and and you make thirty percent of the household income and now you've got to create your own household? How do you send your kid to college? Like those are the things we do. Account based management. Believe it or not, those are already baked into those benefits providers you have, and we work alongside of them a lot. The fact of the matter is, a Wells Fargo wants us involved because we're going to increase four hundred and one k contributions right. by solving all the underlying issues. Mm -hmm. It's a great point. Great Mm -hmm. question there, there, Jess. Um, Do you have anything else, Jess? Great. Well, Pete, this has been amazing. Uh, A lot of fun, a new topic for us. I learned a lot and uh, I just, we really appreciate it. Can you tell everybody how they can reach you, whether that's social media or if we want your money line to come in and have a discussion with us, uh, just tell everybody how they can reach you. Yeah, thanks for asking, Mike. And Jess, thanks for for your really informed questions. I love questions, but I loved informed questions more than anything. Um, yourmoneyline.com, you know, and on our blog there, we've got so many resources about how do you get your head around these sorts of decisions as a as an HR or benefits professional. So poke around there. If you want to talk to us, you have the opportunity to do that as well. But really use the resources. Educate yourself um, uh, on our decade or more of experience in this and uh, be glad to help you if if that's what you need. Great. Well, Pete, yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Pete. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of What the HR. If you want to hear more episodes like this, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever platform you're listening through now. If you enjoyed the podcast, do us a favor and share with your network, your boss, or your CEO. Help us get this podcast in front of anyone who wants to know what HR looks like when done well. Also, if you have any questions for show topics or people you'd like us to interview, please email Mike and I at podcast at tcsherm.org. That's podcast at tcshrm.org. If you want to find out more about Twin City Sherm or our upcoming events, please visit our website at tcsherm.org. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And finally, if you're not already a member of Twin City Sherm, please use code WHATTHEHR at checkout to receive $20 off your membership. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.